We're going to begin in Isaiah chapter 52 and move into chapter 53 this morning, if you have your Bibles with you. And of course, we are going to put the words on the screen for the text. Basically, we're just working through these texts, last Lord's Day and today, worshiping the Lord. This is one of the most familiar of Isaiah's passages, one of his servant songs. It's a song consisting of five stanzas. Each of them have three verses. It begins at the end of chapter 52 and goes all the way through the 12 verses of chapter 53. The song is an amazingly accurate prophecy about a servant who will come to save his people and the nations. And it was penned 700 years before the birth of Christ, and yet it describes with remarkable detail the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. It's been wonderful hearing the testimonies this morning of how different ones of us who are here have, uh, Micah and Tara and Tara in particular, have, have come to start following Jesus Christ. And I know a lot of you have heard your testimonies. You have a testimony similar to that. And I wonder, having heard that and having uh, the opportunity this morning to go into this passage, which is titled, Christ the Exalted Servant, if you are a follower of Jesus, I just want to ask that question, sort of put it out there. Do you follow Jesus Christ? Do you imitate him? Do you live like he lived? I mean, may, you may have become a believer putting your faith in the death of, res, of Christ for your sins and his resurrection. That is the gospel. That's the good news. And what we do with the gospel is we believe it, we receive it, and God changes us through the Spirit when we embrace it. But the question goes beyond that. Now that you're a believer and you have the power to live that life, do you apply the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ to your life? Are you truly his disciple? Because if you follow him truly, living the life as he taught to live it, your life should be full of paradoxes. You know what a paradox is, of course. It's a, it's a logical contradiction that turns out to be true. Something that seems ludicrous or absurd, but it's not. It just seems that way because it's different than the way we think about life normally outside of Scripture. Think about the title of the sermon, Exalted servant. That's a paradox. That's a contradiction. You don't exalt a servant. Being a servant by very definition is about humility, not being exalted. But not when you live in the real world, the true world that Jesus brought to us. Greatness is achieved not through being served by other people, but through being a servant. Jesus had to teach this lesson to his disciples in Matthew chapter 20 and in other of the gospel texts. In the Gentile world, Jesus told them in Matthew 20, greatness greatness means you have power and authority. And they're living under the Pax Romana, the Roman peace with the sword. And uh, to be great, you had to climb in the Roman government. You ruled if you were great. But that's not the way Jesus said, I want you to live. He said, actually, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man, speaking of himself, came not to be served, but to serve. That's what Jesus did. We can't forget that any day of our lives. 
Jesus came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you obey Jesus? Do you follow him? Do you delight in serving other people? Is your focus upon the needs that you can help and meet, or are you annoyed when people are not serving your needs or your desires? Are you content with any job, any position, any rank, any calling because you are able to help others? Or are you always longing for a better station, to be on top, to be recognized? Jesus said that if you want to find rest for your soul, you have to take his yoke upon you. He said that the first will be last and the last first. That's a contradiction in terms. At least that's the way it seems to us. We don't like to be last. I mean, we might not put ourselves out there to be first, but we don't like to be last. We, we, we don't want to be exactly first all the time because, you know, that would, that would look bad, but, but we hate being last. Jesus said, if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. And that's not very popular. Lose my life, lose my comfort, lose my income level, lose the advancement of my career. I know people who have split their marriages and their families because they wanted to advance in their career. My goals, my enjoyment, all the things we grasp at and pour our time into and attention into that are non-eternal, you mean I have to be willing to give those up? Give up fulfillment in order to be fulfilled? Yes, if you are not living that way, you are not following what Jesus taught. In fact, Jesus even said, if you want to live, you have to die. Die to self and be willing to actually die for his sake if called upon. That's what Jesus taught. You see, that's the real Easter story. Paul said of Jesus in Romans 1 verse 4 that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. The expression from the dead means out from the dead. It means he was numbered among the dead, which means he was numbered with those who had suffered the ultimate humility. Today we celebrate his glorious resurrection, but that resurrection was achieved on the path of suffering and humility, of giving up life in order to win it back. And what Jesus teaches us who desire to follow him is that our lives need to recapitulate the Easter story. That means to restate it, to reassert it to proclaim in the very way we live and talk day by day, the true path in life is the one that Jesus took, the path of humility, the path of service, the path of suffering, because it is the only path that leads to ultimate glory, and that is in the gospel, the fabric of the gospel itself. It's a paradox in this world. And the paradox was spelled out in the very prophecy that we're reading this morning in uh, Isaiah chapter 52 and chapter 53. Five stanzas to this song that exalt the servant who came to save us. And as we work through this, this text this morning, we're going to review very quickly the first two stanzas that we covered last week. But as we work through this, keep in mind, this is how the servant is calling us to live. And to follow him, the kinds of decisions he made, the kind of life he lived is what we are seeking to imitate. We worship him for this, but we imitate it as well. 
in the first stanza, God himself is speaking to the nation of Israel. That is God the Father. He's speaking to his chosen people to whom he will send this servant in 700 years, which is our Savior. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That's what we expect to hear about this one who comes to overthrow sin and conquer darkness and rescue humanity. The word high, as I said last week, can mean raised. So the phrase can mean my servant will be raised in the resurrection and lifted up in the ascension and exalted. The glorified Jesus returning to the Father's throne where he waits to come and establish his kingdom. That is why we celebrate Easter Sunday. That is, in fact, why we celebrate every Sunday. It's it's the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. When he rose from the dead, it was the day of the week that began his exaltation. And we exalt him, therefore, on that day. But as the rest of the song reveals, there is something that would happen to this servant. An experience he would go through before the Lord's servant was raised and lifted up and exalted. And therein is the paradox. And in the rest of the first stanza, the nations whom the servant came to save are dumbfounded. You'll notice they're shocked into silence because of what the nation of Israel did to the Lord's servant who came to save them. So he says in verse 14, as many as were astonished at you, O Israel, his appearance was so marred by his crucifixion beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So... Therefore, by this shall he sprinkle many nations. It's a reference to the salvation he's going to bring them, the purity, the righteousness. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. In stanza two, we shift from God's perspective to Israel's perspective. And here we find that when the servant arrived to save them, they didn't recognize who he was because of the paradox, a contradiction. He was absolutely not the savior they expected. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root, Out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. This is speaking of Jesus' earthly life before his crucifixion primarily. The nation was waiting for a mighty conquering king to destroy their enemies and give them back their kingdom. For even though God had brought many of them back from the nations from which they had been scattered, Babylon mainly, their land still belonged to Rome and they were under the thumb of the emperor. In their minds, their deliverer would be this person of majesty and beauty, not one who understood grief, who identified with the lowly, who could walk through a crowd and be completely unnoticed. So their Messiah came among them, but they missed him. They were looking for someone like they wanted to be, something high, someone proud. 
And that's the same mistake we can make when we think about living our life for Christ. We have to make sure we're living it as he would have lived it. Even as Jesus' disciples followed him in his ministry. Remember, they were waiting for him to get the preaching tour over with so we could get to the part where you raise the army up and overthrow Rome and establish the kingdom. So Jesus tells his disciples that he has to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and rise again the third day. And they're horrified. I mean, they don't understand the rise again part. All they hear is suffer and be killed. And three times Jesus tells them this. And some of the times when you read the accounts, they're, they're kind of silent and they kind of look at each other like, that's not going to happen. Uh, you know, and, and they're not really believing him. And then Peter, a couple of times, speaks up and, and dares to say, no, 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 come here, let's talk. I, this is not going to happen to you. And Peter's rejection of the idea of Jesus' suffering and dying is what lead, uh, leads Jesus to say, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me because you are not thinking of the things of God. You're thinking of the things of man. Peter, you don't understand the paradox. I'm trying to show you what real life is all about, what really is going on. You're too tied to your culture. You're too tied to what you've been taught. It was a very strong rebuke because this is exactly what Satan would have said to Jesus had he understood what was about to happen, that Jesus' suffering and death was the very thing that would defeat him. Satan himself did not understand the paradox. So in stanzas 3 and 4 of this prophecy written 700 years before Jesus, the Messiah's coming, we read of the Lord's servant going through this dark valley. And Isaiah spells it out, for us, this, this paradoxical path that Jesus took as the servant on his way to his exaltation. So let's look here at stanzas three and four together, and we'll make comments uh, on that. It says in verse four, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep. Uh, that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth." The reason the servant is despised and rejected in Isaiah's song is because the people he came to save did not realize what he was doing for them. They didn't recognize him. They didn't even understand why it needed to happen. What was Jesus doing in his suffering and death? We've already heard it sung this morning. We've sung about it. In one word, he was making an atonement for his people. This is a beautiful word that has everything to do with our salvation. And I hope that as you grow in Christ, you come to understand the meaning of this word. Atonement means that the guilt of our sin has been removed. 
And we no longer stand guilty before a holy God awaiting judgment because the Lord Jesus Christ suffered our punishment in our place. That is what he was doing on the cross. He was taking our place. Let that sink in for a moment. You and I should have already suffered God's wrath. And the only reason we haven't is because of what the servant did on that cross, standing in for us. Don't be led astray by caricatures of God in heaven, sort of wringing his hands, wondering why people don't follow him and obey him and be good. Or a God who is looking the other way, unconcerned about sin. Or even by false pictures of a God who just loves everyone too much to send judgment. These are popular pictures of God in a culture that does not know God. And they're a lie. Psalm 7, 11 and 12 tells us that God is a righteous judge who feels indignation, that's anger, every day because of sin. If a person does not repent, that Psalm says, God will whet his sword. He has bent his bow and readied it. In other words, he is fully ready to judge sin and capable and justified in doing so. I remember when I was growing up, my mom had to get on to one of my sister's This is the way I remember the story anyway, because uh, she was teasing me by taking a rubber band and pulling it back and aiming it at my face. And I would react like, like, what are you doing? Don't do that. And she was like, silly, I'm not going to let it go. I would never do that. And I was like, yeah, but even if I believe you, (laughs) it it still makes me uncomfortable to have a rubber band pointed at my face. And, And it would make me flinch whenever she did it. And for the same reason, you never point a gun at somebody, right? We all know that. Even if it's a toy gun, we teach our kids, you never point a gun at somebody. That's, that's just wrong. You never do that. Nobody appreciates having a weapon pointed at them. But how the unbelieving world would flinch and pale in horror and feel sickened inside if they only knew the eternal judgment that is already poised to strike at any moment, bow bent, sword held up, and waiting. We read the verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And that is true because of God's love for us. God sent his Son to die for us, to make that atonement for us, However, we have to remember when we read that verse, Jesus Christ is sent to stand in for us, to take the punishment for us, because God's holiness requires the punishment for sin. If that puzzles us, it's because we don't really understand God's holiness, and we don't really understand how awful our sin is. God loved the world so much, that he gave his son to die in our place. Because God cannot overlook sin and let it go unpunished. He did the most unselfish, unthinkable thing anyone could have possibly imagined. He gave up his own son so that we as pitiable sinners who had no love for God could have our sins against him forgiven. That's what people don't understand about the gospel. Yes, God is a God of holiness and he has to judge sin, but he did everything necessary so that he wouldn't have to judge us. And when we simply believe in Jesus' death for our sins, his substitutionary death, 
his death in our place, in his resurrection, God not only puts down the bow and drops the sword, he welcomes us because of Jesus Christ to his very holy throne and gives us a home there. And now we belong there. We go from being an hateful enemy of God to a beloved child of God because of what Christ has done. And that's what Isaiah describes in this text. Verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. It's the picture of just running off and doing whatever we want, not even thinking about our sin. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The language in this passage is from Leviticus chapter 16. That's where instructions are given for the Jewish celebration of Yom Kippur. Yom is the Hebrew word for day. Kippur means atonement. Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. And on that day, in a special ceremony acted out by the high priest with all the people around, the people would make temporary atonement for sin by substituting animals to pay for their sins instead of themselves. On this occasion, the priest was to bring two goats to present them before the Lord as an offering for sin. Each of the two goats was a necessary part of the atonement for sin because they, they provided a different picture of what the servant was going to do when he came to die for us. Picture number one was the death of a substitutionary sacrifice. The first goat was killed and offered upon the altar because for an atonement to actually take place, there has to be a death. Ezekiel 18.4, the soul who sins shall die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The only way that I can sin and still live is through a substitutionary death. Somebody taking my place instead of me for me. The only way I can sin and still live is through substitution. Picture two is the second goat. It's the carrying away of our sins. And you see the, the language of bearing away in, the, in, this, in this prophecy. With the other goat, the priest was to place his hands on the goat's head and confess all of the sins of the people. And then the goat was taken away and left in the wilderness. And the idea was that the sins which the people had committed were carried away from them so they were no longer responsible for them. And what Isaiah is prophesying in Isaiah 52 and 53 is a perfect sacrifice to come. A lamb who would give his life knowingly to atone for and carry away the sins of the people. Isaiah says, surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried away our sorrows. And borne means to, to take up on the shoulder. And carried is the word that means to shoulder a burden and to carry it away. In verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. Literally, he was pierced through. And it also says here that he is crushed for our iniquities. The traditional translation, bruised for our iniquities, doesn't quite capture the full picture here. It's a word that means an awful, crushing, or even pulverizing experience. It's a metaphor that describes the awful and severe death that Jesus died. And Isaiah says, with his wounds, literally with his welts, with his stripes from the beating, we are 
healed. Now, what are we doing while all this is going on? How did the servant's own people, not to mention the rest of the world, regard him as he sacrificed himself? Well, according to this prophecy, we stood aloof, unthinking, uncaring. Christ was utterly alone in his passion. The contrast in verse 4 is between he and we, if you notice that. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We thought, this is, this is what he must have deserved. I mean, after all, the law says, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, this is from Deuteronomy chapter 21, and it was actually speaking of being put to death from hanging, and the body was not allowed to to stay there for everybody to look at, to be exposed. In, In Jewish culture, God said, that's an abomination. And so you have to take the body down at at sunset and, and bury it. And if stone, if you were stoned, that was different because you were covered with a pile of rocks. That was different. But hanging, you were cursed by God if you were hanged on a tree. For God to allow this to happen to one of his people must mean that he had turned his back forever on that person. But for God to let this happen to his Messiah, not a chance. That's a paradox. This can't be who he said he was. And forever after, this is why the Jews rejected the whole idea of Jesus the Messiah actually being their Messiah. God let him be cursed by being crucified on a cross. That's impossible. But it's a paradox. It appears to be a contradiction. We also notice the striking contrast in verse 6. Notice between we and him. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What were we doing with regard to the servant's death? We're running around like sheep, doing our own thing, not even knowing or caring what was happening for us on Calvary. Alec Motyer, a wonderful commentator on Isaiah, says, with no understanding from us, no sympathy, no participation, no cooperation, no compassion, alone the servant took upon himself the sins of and all of the consequences and griefs of them. That was what he was doing, regardless of what the human eye saw. The servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is our atonement. He paid our penalty. That's what he was doing on the cross. And the next stanza of Isaiah's song explains what happens to the servant in this horrifying execution. Continuing to stanza four, In verse 7, we're struck with the willingness with which the servant gave himself for our sins. Notice it says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah compares us to sheep because of our witless wandering, but he compares the servant to a lamb in order to paint the picture of the servant's complete submission during the entire ordeal of his trial and execution. You put a rope around uh, a lamb's neck, it will lead away, whether you're taking it to you know, have a bath and a drink and a nice meal or whether you're taking it away to slaughter. Lambs are very submissive. 
And it says here, the servant opened not his mouth. I mean, we know that Jesus Christ spoke during his trial and crucifixion, don't we? We have the words recorded in the Gospels. We heard some of them this morning. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. I thirst. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus was not silent. And do you imagine that he bore the lashings and the beatings and the nailing without any groaning or any pain? But when Isaiah says the servant did not open his mouth, the idea is not that Jesus did not speak any words. It means that he did not stand up for himself. He did not object despite the injustice of what was being done to him. He could have stood up and pleaded his innocence. He was absolutely sinless. But he would not speak a word in his self-defense. In fact, Matthew 27 that we heard this morning in our prayer hour, Pilate was amazed that this innocent man raised no objections to the accusations. He's like, don't you hear what they're saying about you? And Jesus stood there saying nothing. It's a fulfillment of this prophecy. The point is, Jesus Christ gave himself for us with clear-headedness, voluntarily, knowing exactly what he was doing, even though what they were doing to him was completely unjust. In fact, verse 8 says, by oppression and judgment, uh, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. Literally, he was given an unfair judgment. He was taken out to die without proper imprisonment or judgment. He was executed without due process. Jesus faced a circus court. It was a wrongful condemnation of his death, killing simply because everybody who was there wanted him dead. And in the last verse of this stanza, Isaiah 9, Isaiah again highlights the fact that he did not deserve any of this treatment because of his own sins. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Notice they made his grave with the wicked, plural, and with the rich, that's singular, the rich man. In his death. In other words, his burial had something to do with wicked people and a rich man. Since the servant was condemned as a criminal, he would have been disposed of like a criminal after he was crucified. Condemned people in Jerusalem were usually thrown out on the garbage heap in the western side of the city, the Valley of Hinnom. It was was a terrible place of cursing because the the kings of, of the Old Testament who had gone away from the Lord actually practiced child sacrifice there. Eventually it was raised. They, they destroyed that valley and they made the, the garbage dump. Everything was thrown out there. It was the constant fire burning. Uh, the, the, in Greek, it's pronounced Gehenna. Jesus used this as a metaphor for hell in his teaching. Usually, the bodies would be thrown there from crucifixion. But in Matthew 27, Joseph of Arimathea, as you know, a rich man requests the body of Jesus to give him an honorable burial. Why would he do that? Because the next phrase says he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He had done no violent acts, and the deceit in the mouth indicates the deceit in the heart. Jesus was perfect both in his inner and his outer person. 
God ordained an honorable burial for the body of Jesus that was more consistent with his character. And again, it underscores the idea that Jesus did not deserve this death himself. He went willingly to the cross for you and for me to make a perfect atonement for our sins. Now, for those of us who know the Lord this morning, these words are life to us. This is the most precious story ever told. We are the humble and grateful recipients of the work of the servant that he did for us to take our place. But we need to consider this morning for just a minute the fact that there are millions of people in the world who do not have any hope, who don't know this story. And not only that, there are also countless people in the world who actually have heard this story and they hate it. In fact, in our culture in America, they hate it more than ever before because now our society is woke and we have a cancel culture. And in a woke, cancel culture, there is no room for the atonement. One evangelical feminist says, the image of Jesus suffering willingly has not been good for the church because it has forced women into the role of victims, suffering the humiliation of being subservient to men, and in some cultures, even being oppressed. She she blames that on the atonement, the doctrine of the atonement. Another author says that those who hold to the atonement are teaching that it is fine for an angry father to punish his son severely, showing him to be an abusive parent, encouraging violence against children. Another says that the teaching of Jesus' atoning death is the reason we have white supremacy and imperialism and gives rise to one people group oppressing another. And more generally, the idea that there is a God who demands holiness or he will punish us is very offensive to people. What do you mean? He punished his son so I won't go to hell. That's sickening, people have said publicly. The people who teach such things, they say that someone had to pay their penalty. They're being shackled by centuries of misteaching, and they're living in the medieval era. There's nothing wrong with us. The ones who are wrong are the ones who are judging us by saying we're going to hell if we don't believe in their God. So denominations and pastors who once preached the Bible are giving in. They're changing the message To fit the culture, one pastor said, the mission and purpose of Jesus' life and ministry was to model for us the love of God. It's not Jesus' death that saves us. It's his life. That's pure liberal theology. It's a gospel message that has no saving power because if we preach and teach and share with our friends what the Bible actually says about the atonement, we can expect to be canceled or worse, in this culture. But we shouldn't be surprised when our Savior was the ultimate victim of a cancel culture, that he will continue to be a victim, and we, his followers, will be scorned for explaining the meaning of his death and telling others of the good news. Many will listen. God will lead us to those, we pray, who will listen, but many will not. And in the days ahead, in the United States of America, And currently, this is already going on in other countries in our world. We're going to have to be committed to the path of humility that Jesus taught us. If we are going to stand on this side of the cross, on the right side of the cross, we're going to have to be willing to die to ourselves, to take the path of humility, to take the path of what is not popular, 
to serve without expecting anything above our station to be canceled as long as it's for preaching the word of God without fear. But you know something? The cancel culture would be right and just to speak out against our gospel and to call us blind and mean and enslaving except for one thing, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection proves that what Jesus said about himself is true. It proves that Jesus is our Savior. The resurrection is what makes the good news of the gospel good news. How do we know that Jesus' death really pays for sin? You can't see that. You can't test that in a laboratory. How do we know we no longer have to die for our sins? Because Jesus himself, after dying for sin, came back to life never to die again. And if we are in him, then we will also never die again for our sins. Christianity, we could say, therefore, is the real cancel culture because we have embraced a Savior who canceled our sin debt with the Father when he paid for our sins. And that's why the servant song in Isaiah begins with God's exaltation of his servant. And it also ends in the same way. In the first stanza, the Lord simply observes that though the servant was marred beyond human recognition, he would be exalted and able to make many nations righteous. But in this final stanza, the Lord tells us why a disfigured servant suffering in such humiliation can actually be exalted to make nations righteous. It's because the servant accomplished the will of the Father. Notice verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I want you to notice the last line, the first line and the last line of verse 10. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In the first line, the Lord is crushing his servant according to his pleasure. But in the final line, the servant is giving himself in order to prosper or fulfill the pleasure of the Lord. Jesus' work for us on the cross was deliberate and premeditated, an act that involved both the work of the Father and the work of the Son. And what will happen when the Father and the Son carry out together this plan of atonement whereby your sins and my sins are paid for on the cross? Line 4 says, He shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. What does that mean? I'll explain it like this. About two weeks ago, a very dear friend of ours named Gene Walters who had been one of the lay pastors under my ministry in Bethany Bible Church in North Carolina, went to be with the Lord. He was close to 80 years old, had been suffering off and on with melanoma cancer. And a week ago from yesterday, I gathered in Hendersonville, North Carolina, with dozens of former church members and friends and family of Gene Walters for a graveside service. And I could tell you many wonderful things about this man of God this morning. He was a true mentor in my life. But one of his greatest joys, besides talking about the Lord, was simply being there with his wife and with his children and with his grandchildren, just to sit with them and to watch them play and to hold them. What a wonderful blessing. But now, Gene Walters is with the Lord. 
And what does that mean? It means he no longer sees his offspring, his children and his grandchildren, because he has passed to the other side and they remain here. And whatever love and joy and good times they may have continued to share together in this life had he stayed, now it is impossible that Gene has departed since he has departed. But there is something absolutely astounding about the servant in verse 10, something that probably puzzled the original hearers. It says that he shall see his offspring, his children. How can one who has been cut off, who has been killed in such a violent way, continue to see his offspring? And though notice it says, he shall prolong his days which is the most curious statement. It's a Hebrew phrase that is always used with reference to prolonging earthly life. But never before in all of God's revelation had it been used of one who was already dead. And then Isaiah says, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In other words, by his hand, here is a living, active, effective servant continuing to do the Lord's will after he has died. How can these things be? And the only explanation is that the servant was killed, but he didn't stay dead. His piercing did not make an end of him. He was cut off from the land of the living, but not for long. He was placed in a rich man's tomb, but it could not hold him. The servant has risen. He has conquered death. The atonement is complete in its perfection. Not only did he die for our sins, he came back to life so that he's able to offer eternal life to all who put their faith in him. The reason Gene Walters or any of us have put our faith in the, who put our faith in the death of Jesus Christ for our sin, the reason that we have the hope of rising again someday is because Christ arose again. In fact, the same thing is essentially stated in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, that is, knowledgeably, knowing full well what he was doing, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You know what? There are a lot of people who lined up in the story to uh, crucify Jesus Christ, the Jewish mob, the Roman soldiers who nailed him, the Roman government who was over his execution. And you take all of the people that are involved and you could put the blame on any one of them for the death of Jesus Christ. But the truth is, none of them are ultimately responsible because Jesus Christ did not die as a martyr. He went to the cross with full knowledge. He says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again in the resurrection. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. That's what Jesus said. Jesus Christ was not killed for you. He died for you and he rose again for you that he might make you righteous before the Father And now, finally, the exaltation of the servant reaches its climax with verse 12, with what the Lord promises to do to his servant. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul into death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession 
for the transgressors. This is a picture of a conquering king coming back from battle, having received the spoils of victory. It reminds us of what Paul says about Jesus in Ephesians 4, where he says that Jesus, after his victory on the cross, led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. It's an amazing picture. The risen Savior has gloriously completed the mission he came to perform and has victoriously conquered sin and death. And he has given by God the great number of those who will believe in him. And not only that, all of the strong ones of the earth, he has also been given, which chose him to be truly king of kings and lord of lords. Truly, he gained his life through losing it. He found glory through humility, the crown through the cross. He was exalted through being a servant. That is why we worship him today. He rose again for us. In all of the language and all the trappings and all the beauty of the singing, and it's been a wonderful time of worship this morning, let's not forget what really is going on. Christ died for us, and he rose again. And that has continuing implications for our lives. Let us worship him, but let us also imitate him, the exalted servant. Father.